0: If you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We're going to pick up where we left off last week with kind of the second half of verse 38. And we're going to go through verse 16 of chapter 19. So we've got some ground to cover this morning. If you have no idea where John is, feel free to open up. You've got a, a pew Bible there if you don't have one with you. Go to the New Testament, so kind of past the halfway point. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And then look for the big number 18, that's the chapter that we're going to be in, and then look for the little uh, number 38, and that will be the verse that we're starting in if if you're unfamiliar with how to find things in the Bible. If you do not have a copy of God's Word for your own, we'd love to give you one. And so there are some uh, blue paperback Bibles on the way out. Please grab one of those, write your name in it, we would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. There's also some uh, uh, giveaway copies of the Gospel of John. And so if you'd like to take some of those to give away to friends and neighbors, please take those. We've got plenty, and we're happy to give those away. So we're going to continue on in our study of John chapter 8 of John, Gospel of John, and we're going to finish up where we left off last week. And as you're opening up there... I bet many of us have experienced very similar emotion this past week as the war in Ukraine has kind of unfolded, and we've heard about that, and we've seen you know pictures and updates. We've seen civilian targets bombed. We've heard stories of families being torn apart. The untold, like, thousands now approaching over a million people who have had to flee and to pack up all their belongings or grab what they could and run, and you're seeing reports of you know people in poland like leaving baby extra baby strollers out at the subway station so that when moms come in and they have a, a baby and an infant and they couldn't take they have a stroller there that they can just take and get food being handed out i mean it's just it's wild when you when you watch it and as we've seen these reports and we've heard the news we've we've all experienced sadness kind of a feeling of helplessness you know how what can i do how can i help but I bet we've also felt a, a bit of something else, and that that emotion is one of indignation and And the way that that word is defined, we saw it in our corporate confession of sin this morning we saw that word indignation. The way it's defined is anger or annoyance provoked by what is perceived as unfair treatment. And you see these reports of the bombs falling and civilian targets being shelled, and you you ask. What could these people possibly have done to deserve all of this? That feeling of indignation, like, who in the world do these Russians think that they are? And these these people, this feeling of indignation, it's so unfair. Why in the world is this happening in our world? We've all kind of maybe felt a tinge of that emotion And the events over this past week have shocked us back into reality. It's reminded us that, yes, we do still indeed live in a fallen world, and that injustice and petty tyrants still exist in what appears to be a very modern and civilized world. We're reminded that the refrain of Ecclesiastes over and over again is, there's nothing new under the sun, and we're reminded of that yet again. And this morning as we read this text, I want you to kind of take that feeling of indignation with you into this text. Uh, Many of us are so familiar with the story of Jesus' arrest and trial that we've kind of become desensitized to just how terrible this actually was. One of my seminary professors told the story about reading the Jesus Storybook Bible with his kids for the first time, these little ones, and he was just trying to expose them to the person and work and the life and the ministry of Jesus, and they started just kind of reading through this with his small kids at bedtime, and his kids loved hearing about Jesus and how kind he was, especially to other kids just like them. You know, they, they loved hearing about Jesus And he talked about how indignant they got when they read about Jesus being put on trial, beaten, and crucified. And they said, Daddy, that's just not fair. Why would they do that to Jesus? And that's the big question, isn't it, as we think about this text? Why did they do that to Jesus? We naturally recoil from obvious displays of injustice, and this is absolutely one of them, probably the worst. But as we'll see, even as this true king is mocked, his motivation remains absolutely steadfast through it. And so let's go now and read this portion of scripture as we think about the arrest and the beating of Christ. John chapter 18, starting at the the, the second half of verse 38. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. And so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer, and so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin From then on Pilate sought to release him but the Jews cried out If you release this man you are not Caesar's friend everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar So when Pilate heard these words he brought Jesus out and sat him on the judgment and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement and in Aramaic gabatha Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Father, as we consider this text before us this morning, O Lord, may we remember your sovereignty and your great love. Take these words, apply them to our hearts, help us to understand the gospel in a richer and deeper way. Help us to behold the wondrous mystery of the gospel and to dwell upon Christ and all that he has done in our behalf. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're basically going to have two points this morning, if you're a note-taking type of person. The first point is going to be the longest one by far. And that point is, we're going to see point one, the mocking of the true king, is going to be our first point. And our second point is going to be the motivation of the true king. So the mocking of the true king, and then the motivation of the true king. Those are going to be our two points, and as you'll notice, it's a pretty big contrast. And so let's look at that first point, the mocking of the true king. We spent the past few weeks looking at the few short hours leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. He's been denied by Peter. Three times he's been arrested and dragged before the high priest and questioned. And then he's been dragged before the Roman governor and then questioned again. And last week we looked at the Jews who were trying to save face during the Passover. They attempted to avoid taking the blame by getting Pilate to try Jesus in the Roman system. They're trying to kind of wash their hands of it and, and push this out upon Rome. But Pilate, being fearful of a career-ending riot, another one, he's, remember he's already endured a bunch, and we talked last week about how this particular area at this time was known for these, uh, the, the local inhabitants, the Jews, being uh, very taken aback and very hostile towards Roman occupation. And so Pilate is fearful of word getting back to Caesar, and that his position being being taken away from him. And so what he did was he attempted to avoid taking the blame by getting the Jewish leaders to try Jesus in the temple system. They're all basically passing Jesus around because none of them wants to take blame for it. And both parties had the same thing in common. We talked about this last week. Their little mini kingdoms were built on pride and self-preservation, and they were willing to unjustly destroy Jesus in the process to protect those little kingdoms. And look at the second half of verse 38 as we dive into the text this morning. After questioning Jesus in private, Pilate goes back outside to the angry mob of religious leaders. Remember they're gathered kind of outside of his house, and he says, "I find no guilt in him." And what he means by this is threat is Jesus is not a threat to the Roman emperor. And honestly, he could absolutely care less about the theological charges that the Jewish leaders have brought about Jesus. His job is, is this guy a direct threat to the imperial system in Rome? And he says, no, I don't find any guilt in this man. In verse 39, instead of immediately dismissing the case, Pilate again tries to save face by letting others decide. Because a custom had apparently been established during the Passover festival to commemorate God sparing the Israelites from death by pardoning a criminal. And so he tried to make the choice easy by offering up someone really terrible as the other option next to Jesus. And that other option is a guy named Barabbas who we're told was a notorious murderer. He was an insurrectionist and also we're told here that he's a thief. Kent Hughes. Here's what he said about this kind of choice. He said, "These religious men are so perverted that they prefer the release of a notorious murderer to the sinless Christ, and lower themselves to crass political blackmail in order to gain their end." Remember again, as we see this scene unfold here, these are the religious. These are the religious leaders. These are folks who have been steeped in the messianic promises of the Old Testament that are calling for, that have been calling for the death of that very Messiah, their only hope. They knew all about the promises of this coming one. And think about that promised one is standing right in front of them, and they're calling for his death. We like to sing a song called, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Very familiar song, and it it offers in one of the verses, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And you see, we're not innocent bystanders in this scene. It's so interesting, it's it's so easy for us to kind of distance ourselves from these Pharisees and from others in these biblical texts and think, well, I wouldn't do something like that. But you see, we're not innocent bystanders. We are among the mockers. And you think, how often do we choose what is debased over Christ How often are we willing to throw him under the bus of our own ambition in order to save face to get what we want? We have this thing that I want to protect my little kingdom and I want to do what I want when I want it, which is the heart of sin. And we're so willing to throw Jesus under the bus to be able to protect our own little mini kingdom. How often do we let injustice happen before our eyes and stay silent to protect ourselves? The bad news of this scene is that we have the same Pharisee heart beating in our chests. I do. You do. That's why we see ourselves as part of the mockers. We have that same Pharisee heart beating in our chests. David captured this very sentiment in Psalm 38 verses 1 through 4. David wrote, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. Christians and non Christians this morning, I can't see your heart. I don't know where you stand with the Lord. I always assume that there are folks in this room who don't know the Lord. Christians and non-Christians who are gathered here this morning heed the words of David at the end of this very psalm in Psalm 38 and verses 21 and 22 where David writes, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. The call is the same for both those who know Christ and those who don't because at the heart level we have this Pharisee heart within us and the call is the same Turn from your sin, turn from your mocking, and return and flee to Christ. Look to Christ. Matthew records this interesting Pilate's wife coming to him in this scene in Matthew 27, 18 to 19. And here's what Matthew writes. He says, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. The Romans placed great weight on dreams and omens, but Pilate ignored her warning. I mean, imagine this note coming in from your wife, this word coming in, and she's saying, please don't press forward with this. I've had this dream about him, and and I don't see anything good that's going to come out of it. And you see Pilate again trying to save his own neck, ignoring her warnings. And Matthew's account also includes the famous scene of Pilate then going and washing his hands of the matter. But then we hear the Jews say something very scary. Matthew 27, 24 to 26 says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Think about what's going on here. In their zeal to destroy Jesus... We have the religious leaders of the day gathered outside calling a curse upon not only themselves, but also their future descendants. They're saying, let his blood be on our hands. You think it didn't take long as that city in which they were living would be destroyed in 70 AD. Just a generation later, that city would be toppled. And look at chapter 19 as it begins here, as the people have been crying for Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Jesus is taken away and flogged. He's beaten within an inch of his life with a leather whip embedded with lead and brass and bone to speed the execution. Most people think, most scholars believe that this is ferocious enough to expose bone and organs. Absolutely brutal beating. It was meant to make the execution go quicker. That it wouldn't last past the end of the day. And so here you have Jesus. He's taken away and he's flogged. And I want you to think about that image of Jesus being flogged within an inch of his life because that's the Jesus that we see for the rest of our verses this morning. As if the religious mocking and the beating wasn't enough, now Jesus is taken away to be mocked by the Romans. And look at verse 2. They make this fake crown of thorns and they cover his bloody body with the color reserved for royalty. They cover him with a purple kind of robe and they're making him, they're mocking him. Oh, you claim to be a king? Well, who's the king now? In verse 3, they publicly mock him and did you notice they beat him again? Verse 4, Pilate again tries to distance himself. Basically, he says, You made me do this. In verse 5, Jesus is paraded in front of everyone. Think about this this bloodied, weak man who's been beaten within an inch of his life, who's obviously not, not a threat to Roman might. And Pilate exclaims, Behold the man! And that was a very common way to introduce the accused in Rome. But it also was an unknowingly a theological statement that Pilate was making. You see, Jesus is the last Adam, the true and the better man, who would lay down his spotless life in the place of sinful people. He says, Behold the man, behold the one. Verse 6, as the scene unfolds, instead of feeling any remorse or compassion, don't you think after you would have seen this that there may have been something in your heart as you're watching this happen in front of you, that you, something may have checked inside your heart and think, why are we doing this? But the chief priests and the temple, and the temple officers who also should have called off this farce, They call out twice, crucify him, crucify him. They actually become the leaders of the mob. They whip the mob into a frenzy. Pilate again tries to distance himself from this. And he tells them to kill Jesus themselves. In verse 7, the Jews again accuse Jesus of blasphemy, which was punishable by death in Leviticus 24, 16. They say, you know, he makes himself to be the son of God. What an ironic statement. But I want you to notice as we think about these religious leaders, notice how they just kind of pick and choose which Old Testament laws they want to apply. Only the ones that work best in their favor are the ones that they are willing to to apply. Remember, we've already seen a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at his kind of theological exam before the high priest, how instead of actually bringing formal charges, which was required, they chose to ignore that one. But now they're happy... To pick that law, ooh, I like that one, that one furthers my agenda. And so he said, we have to put this man to death. In verse 8, Pilate's afraid that this will turn into another major riot. And so he takes Jesus back inside and he questions him again. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus remains silent before his accusers. Notice Pilate's trying to get some answers out of him, and Jesus is just kind of there and he's quiet. And it fulfills the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, 7 that says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I mean, think about this. This prophecy was written 700 years before the coming of Christ. And now it's coming to bear. In verse 10, Pilate reminds Jesus that He's the one with the authority to spare his life. Again, a very ironic statement. And he's trying to pressure Jesus. But finally, we do hear Jesus speak, don't we? In verse 11, and he reminds him of, the true, of what true authority is. Look at what Jesus says. Pilate questions him, so you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? In verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And I want you to think about, imagine Jesus speaking these words after he's been beaten within an inch of his life, and he's bloody. Probably every one of these words is agonizing to speak. And he is reminding reminding, uh, Pilate of where true authority comes from, and that is God himself who's sovereign over this entire affair. Even the wickedness of the Pharisees and the cowardice of Pilate are part of the plan. All of them are like clay in the Father's hand as he is working and moving all things towards redemption. John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is Jesus saying that. I have the authority to lay down my life and pick it up. And Pilate is saying, don't you know, I'm the one who has the authority to either preserve your life or end it. And Jesus has already said, no, you don't. I have that authority. And it's a good reminder for us today that God is still sovereign, And we trust him through all circumstances. All his works are good, his heart is good, his will is holy. And we see the Son of Man, Jesus, this incarnate one who's coming and he's being beaten and bruised and mocked. But yet, it's all moving towards the cross. Joseph learned this after being betrayed and sold into slavery by his own brothers. What did he say at the end of Genesis 50? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring, a, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see the sovereign hand of the Lord. You see Jesus willingly offering himself up. In verse 12, Pilate still tried to find a way to, to release Jesus. You see Pilate just trying to weasel out of this any way that he possibly can. But the Jews accuse him of being a traitor to Caesar for not dealing with someone who claimed to be a king. They were threatening Pilate with the loss of his title. Friend of Caesar was a very specific title. And they're basically saying, if you don't deal with this guy who is claiming to be a king and is in direct opposition to the Roman emperor, you will no longer be a friend of Caesar. And basically, we are going to fuss and complain about this and make sure you lose your job. And so you see Pilate, being threatened here again. And so then in verse 13, it kind of starts coming to a conclusion. Pilate goes to some sort of official place. It's called the stone pavement. Gabbatha actually means in Aramaic an elevated place, so kind of like the high place where judgments were officially rendered. And in verse 14, John tells us that this was the day of preparation before the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday. And some commentators have made a big deal out of the exact time of day mentioned in verse 14, but we can't really be certain. John tells us that it was about the sixth hour, which is around noon, but it could have been earlier based on someone looking at the position of the sun. It's not like somebody pulled out the, you know, we have, we have watches and phones that kind of connect to kind of universal time. You know, they would have looked up at the sun and seen its relative position and said it's about noon, it could have been a little earlier remember, based on the season, the sun may have been a different place. And so the exact time is not as important, though, as the day. Because this day was the day that the lambs were killed in preparation for the Passover feast the next day. Reminding us yet again that Jesus was the true sacrificial lamb that all those other lambs pointed to. Remember, this happened in real space and time, in history, what was going on at the time was this Passover feast, and this was the day where all the lambs were killed to get ready for the feast the next day. Don't you see how it's all coming together and it's clicking together? Now Pilate exclaims, Behold your king, in a mocking tone as Jesus stands there. In verse 15, the Jewish leaders call again for Jesus to be crucified. Did you, number, did you notice the number of times they called for his death? Three, just like Peter. I don't know him. Now crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But instead of a rooster crow, we see Pilate trying one last time to persuade the mob. He says, shall I crucify your king? Calling Jesus this only angered the mob even more, so much so that they say something so ludicrous that it shocks us today. He says, shall I crucify your king? And they get so incensed, like, Who in the world does Jesus think he is? He's not our king. They say something so ludicrous it still shocks us today. Think about what they're saying. They say, we have no king but Caesar. This is from the lips of the clergy, from the religious leaders of the day. We have no king but Caesar. Just amazing that is. Shows you how hypocritical they had become. They hated Roman occupation. Remember, these are the same people that would lay in the street outside the governor's house and he threatened to lop their heads off. And in defiance, they just stretched their necks out all the more. They hated Roman occupation. And they fought it tooth and nail. And Pilate knew this very well. But now they were willing to pledge their allegiance to Rome just to take Jesus out of the picture. And in verse 16, they get their wish, don't they? as Jesus has an official judgment rendered upon him and he is handed over to be crucified. You see, the mocking of the true king, publicly mocked, beaten, behold your king, mocked by Rome, mocked by his own people, mocked, the true king mocked. Okay, so why should we care? This is our second point, which is shorter than the first, by far. This is the motivation of the true king. This is where the rubber hits the road. Ian Duguid asked a piercing question in his commentary that I read this past week. He asked, What kind of king do we want? One who will destroy us or one who loves us enough to be destroyed on our behalf? What kind of king do you want? One who will destroy you or one who loves you enough to be destroyed on your behalf? We all have, at some point in our lives, pledged our allegiance to another king, have we not? And the world is quite happy to keep parading false kings in front of us. The king of money, comfort, materialism, lust, power, control, physical appearance, social status, whatever it is. Which, which is the new king that you will come and pledge your allegiance to? Which idol will you bow down to? But I think deep down we all know that those fake kings won't last. None of them will help us beyond the grave, but they will happily lead us there. Only one king in human history has given everything up to save his enemies and offer them a place in his family. Think about that. King Jesus willingly laid down his life for his enemies to rescue and redeem them and also to bring them not only into his kingdom but into his family. Remember that little question the little kids asked at the beginning? They said, Daddy, that's not fair. Why did they do that to Jesus? The answer to that question lies at the very heart of the gospel. You see, Jesus was not just a passive recipient of injustice. He freely offered himself. He knew what was coming. He knew it had to be done. And he willingly laid down his life. As he said, he was like a lamb led to the slaughter, but yet he opened not his mouth. Why? John 10, verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's why. That's why he did it. Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Psalm 7 verse 11 tells us that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Why? Why? Because the ones he has created have turned their backs on him and their sin. That's you, that's me, that's everybody in this room. And that's bad news. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all have turned our backs on the God who loves us and the God who made us. We're all guilty of that, every one of us. And that's the bad news that's laid before us. Oh, but there's good news. There's good news, friends. Isaiah 53, 2-5, through the suffering servant. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Think about this. Hundreds of years before Christ came in the flesh, the suffering servant was promised. And at just the right time, praise be to God, he came. He came. The injustice of Jesus' arrest and trial and conviction at the hands of those who hated him the most led to the point where the justice and the mercy of God met for those he loved the most. Let me say that again. The injustice of Jesus' arrest, trial, and conviction at the hands of those who hated him the most led to that point in history where the justice and the mercy of God met for those whom God loved the most. At the cross, when Christ endured the death that we deserved to purchase us back from the wrath that we so justly deserved, Because of the great love with which he loved us. Look back at that assurance of pardoning grace that we read earlier from Psalm 85. Where it talked about, restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation towards us. We see in the assurance of pardon there, it says, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all their wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. We see the covenant love of God, his Hesed faithfulness, and you see the, just this, this covenant love and faithfulness, where do they meet? They meet at the cross. For us, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to be received by faith alone. All of, think about this, all of God's burning anger, his wrath, his indignation, was poured out on Jesus instead of you. And that is good news for us this morning who are in Christ. Again, we sing in that hymn, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. Remember, Jesus said, It is finished. Why? Ephesians 2, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. And it's by grace you've been saved. Don't turn away from the image of this beaten within an inch of his life, Christ. Because he went there for you and for me. Taking upon himself the wrath of God that we so justly deserve because of our sin. And dying in our place as that one true spotless Passover lamb. So that we could walk in newness of life. That we could know the love of the Father instead of wrath and judgment. Christ took it all upon himself as he stands there being mocked. The true king never looked more regal in his life, did he not? The suffering servant, crowned with a crown of thorns, covered in the purple robe of royalty never looking more kingly and regal in his life as the one who is about to go and lay down his life for a bunch of helpless sinners like you and me. It's the gospel. It's the gospel message. And even as we see ourselves in the crowd shouting, crucify him, we think about this, why should we care this morning? I'm almost done. Why should we care about any of this? Because it's our only hope, ladies and gentlemen. It's our only hope. It's all we've got. 1 Peter 2, 21-25. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, You have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We think about this beaten, mocked Jesus, and we're reminded it had to be like this. He went and willingly laid down his life for us, died in our place. By grace have you been saved, by mercy. Have you been delivered? By his wounds, you have received reconciliation and redemption. That is the good news of the gospel. Jesus in your stead. Again, we're about to sing the song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Come behold the wondrous mystery of the gospel. Come stand in awe of it. Christ the Lord upon the tree for you. And what is our response? Behold. Behold your king, behold him in all of his majesty, slain for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness to us, O Lord. When we think about you being mocked and beaten, slandered, Lord, we consider and remember your grace and your mercy towards us. We're reminded of the cross, that it was our sin that held you there. Until it was accomplished. And we live in light and dwell upon the banner of your love because it is finished. And Lord, help us to not turn away from this scene of your mocking and beating and humiliation, O Lord, as we are reminded that it took nothing less than that to redeem and restore us and to purchase our salvation. We couldn't do it on our own. Forgive us, O Lord, for all the ways that we have followed other kings and other idols all the ways that we have mocked you by our words, by our lives, O Lord. And help us to flee to you. Help us to flee to you, trusting in your good heart. Lord, trusting in the ways that you were faithful until the very end. And now, O Lord, you rule and reign in the throne of heaven as as our resurrected Savior. And you now show us grace and mercy, and you walk with us. What a hope. What an amazing hope.